Okay, if you wouldn't mind standing with me in honor of God's Word as we read it together. Um, I'll read it. You can follow along. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to and clung to for his own advantage. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Well, as you're uh, turning to our scripture passage for this morning, um, and that's, it's Isaiah 44 and 45, you can find it on page 605 um, in the uh, Pew Bible if you're using that, but as you're turning there, I want you to think um, that we live, you and I live in a story that is infinitely larger than just our little 70 or 80 years of a life. Okay, so we are a part, yes, it's a little blip compared to all of human history, but we live in God's eternal story. He's the author. He knows the end, well, he knows the end from the beginning. And he is working all things, like it says in Ephesians, according to the counsel of his will. And so as we try to locate ourselves in a different part of the story in Isaiah, some of it is foreign to us. We have to get caught up on what's going on, but we'll also realize, we've seen this before, that their struggles and issues and the things that they needed are very similar to the things that we need as well. So God's, God's word, though written you know, centuries and centuries ago, is so relevant to our human condition. So the people of God to whom Isaiah was written originally, they understood that they were a part of a greater story. Okay, but Isaiah 40 to 55, which is this main section that we're in as we walk through the book of Isaiah, it was originally aimed 
at those in exile in Babylon. Okay, this is around 586 to 539 B.C., and they were enslaved to a foreign power. They were in need of deliverance. You can imagine being displaced from your homeland and under the thumb of a foreign power. How badly you would want to return, how badly you would want deliverance. And the Lord had promised this deliverance. In fact, we looked at it in the last couple of weeks in chapters 42 and 43. He promised this deliverance from Babylon. But greater than their need for deliverance politically, from underneath Babylon's thumb. They needed rescued from their slavery to sin. They need, needed spiritually revived. So our text this morning, all the way through Isaiah 55, just to locate us in the big picture here of Isaiah, is going to deal with how. How are you going to do that? How are you going to deliver us from Babylon, but also deeper than that, from enslavement to sin. So the original audience would have been asking, how's this going to happen? Is, is the Lord going to raise up some Moses-like leader to deliver us and lead us out like he did out of Egypt, you know, years and years ago? Would he raise up a king like David to set them free? I mean, they knew, they knew the story. So they knew that God had made promises to David, promises like this, 2 Samuel 7, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, a dynasty. And, and God promised David, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. You're going to die, but I'm going to establish your line forever. I will be to him a father. There's this special king that's spoken of. And he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So, decades in exile... You can imagine them thinking, is God ever going to make good on his promises? I mean, when is he going to establish his kingdom? He said he's going to establish his throne forever. How's this possible? Well, by the way, the delay of time between the giving of a promise from God and the receiving of what is promised, that's where we live. That's called the school of faith. And the effectiveness of that school in our lives can be threatened by trial and suffering and what we perceive as delay because we wonder if God's really going to make good on his promises. doesn't seem like he's doing so. We often allow the suffering that takes place in the delay, in this time in between, the time between the giving of promise and the, the fulfillment of that promise to call the reliability of the promises into question because what do we end up doing? We end up calling the character of God in the question. So, like, for instance, just to make this very contemporary, we might think, well, we've never, we don't need to be promised to be delivered from exile. Okay, our, our Father promises, don't be anxious about your life. I know what you need before you ask. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. It's a promise of, I'll take care of you, provide for you. And yet, financial Concerns and issues arise that seem to call that promise into question and we get really anxious between the, we know this promise, but is God going to make good on it? And we can call the character of God into question. So this is not just a 500s BC problem. It's a 2016 problem. It's a human problem. 
Well, our text this morning is God speaking to us in response um, because of how much trouble we oftentimes have in the, in the delay, in the meantime, between the giving of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. How is he going to make good on his promises of deliverance? Well, as we read this section, the specificity is shocking, especially given the fact that these things were written down by Isaiah over a hundred years before they happened. But equally shocking is the answer that God gives regarding how he's going to bring about deliverance from exile. So let's look at some of these shocking answers that God gives. Um, point number one, the shock of sovereignty, 4424 to 457. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. You know, so often prior to exile, they were sticking their fingers in their ears to Isaiah, God's messenger, and they were listening instead to you know, the wise men from the nations, you know, they're, they're wanting to make allegiances with this and that nation, and they were bowing down to idols of other nations, listening to other so-called wise men, and, and the Lord is reminding them of who he is. I'm in control of all this. I can confirm my word. I can frustrate the word of those who presume to know the future or presume to be the wise men. Verse 26 goes on, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. In other words, you're going to return home. I'm going to do it. Who says of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Which is, I think, an Exodus reference. You know how in order to, to um, get his people out of Egypt, he parted the waters. So up to this point, they probably would have nodded and said, Amen. But then the shock comes in verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So what's going on here? Well, you have to know a little bit of history. So Cyrus was a king, and he started out as kind of a, a little king, a vassal king in the Median Empire, and he revolted and he took control of the entire empire in 550 BC. And with surprising speed, he was able to just bring all of Mesopotamia under his control, and he took over Babylon. And you can read in history books, this is, all took place. Took over Babylon by 539 BC. So that was the end of the Babylonian Empire and the beginning of the Persian Empire. So put yourselves in the shoes of these exiled Israelites. They're in exile in Babylon, and now God says that a conqueror great enough to subdue Babylon, under whose thumb they've been for how long, is going to come marching through the land. Oh, great. That seems like really bad news, like a really fearful prospect. And then the Lord is calling him his shepherd, which is a metaphor for a king. So you can imagine they're wondering, like, what are you doing what do you mean calling some pagan king your shepherd? 
Have you just completely scrapped the promises to David? Shocking if we get in their shoes. It actually gets more shocking. 45.1, thus says the Lord to his anointed. You know what that word is? In Hebrew, it's the word for Messiah. In the Greek translation of, of the Hebrew, it's the word Christos. Christ. The Lord says to his Christ, his anointed one, his Messiah, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces. So in other words, the Lord's just going to, the Lord is the one that actually made him so successful. Why is he doing this? Look in in the middle of verse 3 there. That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake, I'm doing it all for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I'm doing it for my people. I'm calling Cyrus by name a hundred years ahead of time. I name you, watch this, though you don't know me. We'll come back to that. I am the Lord and there's no other besides me. There's no God. I equip you, though you don't know me, again, that people may know from the rising of the sun And from the West, in other words, just over the whole earth, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So this is shocking sovereignty. Did you hear verse 7? Do you know verse 7 is in the Bible? I make well-being and create calamity. So God's going to raise up this pagan idolater king as his shepherd and Messiah in order to accomplish his purposes. And it actually happened. You can read it in Ezra 1. I won't even take you there, but you can read it in Ezra 1, 1 to 4. It lays it out there how he made a proclamation and said, okay, you can go back. And we have record, actually, historical record outside the Bible of how Cyrus did this, his own take on these things. You can go to a library, you can read it. But you know what? In his own words, do you think he says anything about Yahweh, about the Lord telling him to do it? No. Do you know, in his own words, why he did all of this? It's actually a pretty pragmatic reason. He had this policy of returning all people to their own lands because he wanted the favor of all the gods, though you do not know me. So it's not like Cyrus was really a believer in Yahweh. But again, God is orchestrating everything. This actually shouldn't surprise us, even though this is shocking that God would use this king like this. It shouldn't be shocking. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So, all right, all that... What are the implications of God raising up leaders and all the... I mean, don't just think about individual leaders. That happens in a context, right? I mean, oh, I would love to go off on a tangent right now about our political scenario right now. What does it take to actually create an environment where someone like Donald Trump would actually have some backing? That's amazing what it would take for that to happen. 
So political, military, social, economic conditions that made this transition from Babylonian Empire to Persian Empire a reality or any other kingdom at any other time. So what are the implications of God doing that, being in control of all of that? Let's say, church, listen, let's say America continues in its moral decline and let's say persecution against Christians rises. Would this passage have anything to say to us? has lots to say to us now as well. This is actually encouraging to know in the light of the present political landscape. Even the most powerful kings, they're merely pawns in his hand. God is overseeing and ordaining all that comes to pass. Nothing takes place outside of his control. Nothing takes place outside of his control. He's not surprised by anything. And that's why he can, he's able to, he does work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose because nothing is outside of his control, his purview. So when bad things happen, listen, this is the testimony of the Bible. The Bible doesn't say God just comes in on his white horse and cleans it up. No, he does. But he's actually more sovereign than that. He intends, he superintends all things, including evil and suffering, for his glory and his purposes, and all the while he is never guilty of evil. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. But that doesn't mean that he said, ooh, I didn't do that. Let me see if I can figure out a way to clean this up. So that kind of sovereignty might be shocking. It might offend us at times. But if we define sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, in such a way that there's no shock value, we may have downsized him from how he reveals himself in Scripture. So you know what? In fact, the most shocking thing he ever did was rejected by precise what was rejected precisely because it didn't fit into the the neat theological boxes of those at that time. The most surprising anointed one, the most shocking Messiah was a humble crucified one. So we're talking about this transcendent awesome God, but also the shock factor extends to the verse that Chris quoted. The Messiah In the form of God, equal with God, he didn't count that equality a thing to be used to his own advantage and held on to, but he emptied himself and ultimate condescension, stooped down, took on the form not just of a human being, but the form of a servant. Are you kidding? Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. God became obedient. God in the flesh to the point of death in the most humiliating, shameful way, death on a cross. That offended even his disciples at first. He asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ. Right? And then at that point, Jesus responds and says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And what did Peter say? (laughs) Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. This is outside the box. This can't happen. It's too shocking. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
But then they embraced it. Acts 2, Peter's preaching. In fact, flip to see this because you need to see the connection between this shocking Savior and the sovereignty of God. So flip to Acts chapter 2. Verse 23, so Peter's preaching at Pentecost. And he's speaking to the Jews, the same Jews that nailed him to the cross. And here's what Peter said. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I mean, it's mysterious to try to put those two things together. If this is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, how can they be guilty? But they crucified him. They killed him. They were lawless men. Now flip ahead to Acts 4, verse 27. And they're praying. The church, the early church is praying here, and here's how they pray. They quote Psalm 2, how the, the kings of the earth um, kick against the Lord and against his anointed, King Jesus. Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples, people of Israel, peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So again, this is a sovereign God in control of all things here. We dare not try to recreate God in our own image, downsizing Him by trying to kind of get Him off the hook of some of the bad things that happen in our world. Well, that ends up introducing even more problems if you really think those things through. So we need to know, we need to believe deep down in our bones, verse 6, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Do you remember Job 2.10? Shall we accept good from God and not calamity? Same word here. I am the Lord who does all these things. So we need to let the Bible, not our small minds and prideful hearts, define reality. So, again, application here. The Lord will use cancer and a bad marriage and unemployment and persecution and depression and dashed hopes and the death of a loved one and on and on in order to save you and in order to shape you into the image of his son in the school of faith, in between the giving of the promise and the fulfillment of that promise. And you know what? We can kick against that and rage, or we can believe that the cloud that hides his smiling face in the midst of trouble is heavy with rain that will break over our lives eventually. We can rage at the storm or we can welcome the rain anticipating the growth that it is given to produce. Those are the two responses here. Look at verses 8 to 11. 
either prayer, welcoming God's work, even though it might be mysterious and strange to us, or trying to prosecute him. Sitting in judgment on him. Look at verse 8. So here's this one response of prayer. Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. The Lord responds, I, the Lord, have created it. I've determined to create it. So that's the response of faith. God says he's going to accomplish his good purposes. He is going to do it through mysterious and even hard providences. But if you know his character, if you trust his sovereignty, you say, do it, Lord. I can't wait to see what's going to grow up from the water that comes from this storm. And that was the heartbeat of a powerful poem. Um, I've quoted it in the past. It's probably been a few years since I've quoted it. But this really powerful poem by William Cooper. He was a friend of John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor who wrote Amazing Grace. And William Cooper wrote a bunch of poetry and he wrote a bunch of hymns as well. Listen to this one called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So you can welcome the storm for the rain that produces God's good growth, or you can rage against the tempest, and God himself warns us of that response. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Now listen, do you know what those two phrases mean? What are you making? In other words, questioning the plans and the intention of the potter, questioning his wisdom. Or your work has no handles, questioning the workmanship of the potter, questioning his ability. Isn't, ouch, isn't that right where our accusations are when we get angry with God? I don't like your plan. I don't know if you know what you're doing. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. (laughs) This is actually sarcastic. It comes with a bite. It's something like, feel free to give me your orders. Then will you command me Concerning my children, verse 10, and the work of my hands, verse 9. Do you see it? Okay, folks, we are the clay. 
He is the potter. C.S. Lewis said it well in a book called God in the Dock. Okay, that's a legal thing. If you're in the dock, you're being examined, right? And there's a little essay inside that book called God in the Dock, and here's what he said in that, that essay. The ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge, man, we, if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Woe to him who strives. Listen also to Ray Ortland Jr. Great summary here. God is not offended by our honest questions. But he is offended when we accuse him of bungling our lives. We just weren't made to sit in judgment on God. We are as far beneath God as clay is beneath a potter. But when we're brooding over how God has ruined everything for us, what does he say? He says, whoa. God is saying, I'm sorry you feel that way about me. You won't let me be God to you. You keep insisting that I do things your way. But I want to be your God, not your puppet. And I want you to be my people, not my judge and jury. How can you experience the love of God without letting me be God? God is too independent for faith in him always to be easy. But whatever your struggle is, God is saying to you today what he is saying to the Jews what he was saying to the Jews back then, my plan is better than you think. So, of course, we, we can know that if we worship any other God, you know, if we bow down, something else becomes more important to God than us, you know, money or power or sex or approval of people, whatever, we can bow down to all kinds of idols, any God substitute. We know that that God is too small. But we may unknowingly try to downsize the true God and reshape him a bit in our own image. And we need to make sure that this text shapes us instead because we're the clay. He's the potter. And if you don't embrace this revelation, then your God is too small. The true God is no small defensive being. He's not avoiding our hard questions, okay? I don't know if this has happened to any of you parents out there, but um, we've had instances where after discipline with our kids, <laughs> um, you kind of, sometimes it's said actually in real words, you know, who disciplines you? <laughs> like, in other words, it must be nice to be the parent. It must be nice up there as the potter. You don't have to know how much your hands hurt. So you could get the wrong idea about his bigness and respond kind of like the child that bristles at the discipline because, oh, it just must be nice. Well, we need to know that it's a loving thing for God to want to give us his true self, not some caricature, right? We need to know how big and sovereign he is. We need the real God, the real thing. We need to know who we are in our smallness and dependence and ignorance, okay? But listen, don't ever forget 
that this awesomely transcendent and sovereign God took away our last complaint. He's not just the big potter up there and we the little clay down here. You don't know what it feels like. He doesn't just superintend history. He entered history. The God who is infinitely vast and big became a fetus inside of Mary. The potter took on the clay. Why? To be crushed. For our God belittling sin. Upon, for our little pottery, you know, what are you doing? You don't know what you're doing. He died for that. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. With him, with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53. And that salvation is right where the text goes to reassure us, reassure his people that his intention all along is a saving intention, that he is able to fulfill all his holy intention. All that sovereignty is bent toward accomplishing his saving purposes. So let's look at those together, verses 12 to 21. Um, So you remember in verse 11 there, (laughs) will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? Look at verse 12. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Will you command me? I've stirred him up in righteousness, Cyrus. I've done it in righteousness. Okay, this isn't, you know, just willy-nilly. I'm doing this for my purposes. He shall build my city. He's a tool of my hand. He's going to set my exiles free. Not for price or reward. I don't have to buy him off. I just command, and he does it. He's going to accomplish my delivering purposes. And then he goes on to give this vision of a time in the future when the nations will come to the people of God to get in on this rather than the the people of God being plundered by the nations like Israel was in Babylon. So this is a picture of the nations coming humbly in verse 14 to get in with the true God. And then there's this response. You can imagine the people saying, truly, you're a God who hides yourself. Yes, his ways are mysterious, but in hindsight, we oftentimes see his wisdom and what was unclear becomes clear. And then there's this bottom line kind of clarity if you're wanting to trust the true God or false gods. Here's the bottom line. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. That's one option. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. I will accomplish my saving purposes. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He didn't create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret. In a land of darkness, I didn't say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. So even though in verse 15 it seems, it feels like he sometimes hides himself and his ways are mysterious, it's not like he speaks in secret cryptic code. He loves to reveal himself. And most certainly, verse 19, those who seek him do not seek him in vain. He is a God who saves and save he will, despite that time between the giving of the promise and the fulfillment 
of the promise. Think about a few examples in biblical history, and then we need to see how that's the same for us. So you remember the Red Sea? God leads them out, and he basically backs them into a corner up to the Red Sea. If you're in Israel, you're going, what, what are you doing? You deliver us to just destroy us. Are you just toying with us? Do you see how they felt? You ever feel like that? Why did God actually do that? Not to make them think that he was just toying with them, but to really show them how mighty he was, to judge their enemies and to deliver them with a mighty deliverance. Why? So that they would trust him. They would know how able he would be to care for them through the wilderness. It was all for their good. How about during the days of Esther? Women's Bible study, studying Esther. So, I mean, it looks like genocide is on the horizon here. But no. (laughs) The Lord worked that in order to judge Haman, this wicked leader, and the enemies of his people felt the sting of God's sword. He delivered his people with this glorious deliverance, this mighty hand and outstretched arm. And on and on. And so... Now, today, between Jesus' first coming and second coming, between the giving of promises and the full reception of those promises, you know what? Christians are being beheaded. Imagine that's possible for you. How are you going to feel about it? Like, what in the world? Are, do you know, you know what? Aren't you going to defend us? Here in our country, the politics are in a hot mess. You might have financial worries. You might have health concerns. Your job may be insecure. Whatever threats or fears might be on the radar for you. Where where are you going to go? Certainly running to other so-called gods or functional saviors isn't going to get you anywhere. Look at verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. What can money do for you on your deathbed? What can that promotion, just climbing the ladder and getting where you always wanted to be, it just is never going to satisfy you, and it certainly can't save you. You can't take it with you. Verse 21, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. And it's funny, I have in my notes here John 6, and we sang those words in that song, Show Us Christ. You remember when Jesus said some hard things in John 6, and Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, do you want to go away as well? And what did Peter respond with? He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's where this text leads us. So remember, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, but you will never seek him in vain because he is working all things according to the counsel of his will to accomplish his saving purposes and intentions. So let's all, all of us, this speaks to each of us individually and all of us corporately, let's all willingly pledge allegiance on bended knee to King Jesus. Verses 22 to 25. Turn to me. Return. And be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. There's no other 
higher authority <laughs> by which I can take an oath. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. It's not going to return empty. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed, this is forced to bow in the future, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, and this includes now people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified, made right with God, bowing in faith now, and they shall glory at the end. Rather than be ashamed, they will be glorified. So do you remember what we read in Philippians 2 in that text? To whom will every knee bow and every tongue confess? Still awake? <laughs> Jesus. Okay? So this is universal in its scope, and it's so individual and personal. Every knee. Every tongue. So all the ends of the earth and every knee and every tongue. To Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. And in Isaiah, it's Yahweh, the only God. So clear evidence, the Son of God is God. So you can either bow the knee to him now in repentance and faith, receiving his pardon and being justified in his sight now and forevermore, or you can reject Jesus and be forced to bow one day in the future and you will receive his condemnation and be ashamed as you are turned away forever. It will happen. Again, listen to Ray Ortland. Someday, each one of us will bow before Jesus Christ as God's ultimate surprise. And he puts Philippians 2 in parentheses there. If you'll look past his unimpressive followers now, if you'll trust him enough to join him in the way of his cross, you will bow then in the deepest joy forever. But if you cling to your hurt feelings and dashed expectations and broken dreams and stubborn pride, and if you insist on sulking and having things your own way, you will bow unwillingly then to your eternal exclusion and regret. And the saddest part will be you will deserve it. But until then, God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died to save us. I mean, look at the nature of the salvation in this text. The scope is expansively inclusive. All the ends of the earth. Every tongue and tribe and people and nation. The source, though, of this salvation is very exclusive. There is only one way. There is no other way of salvation. Jesus said it, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you know what? One Savior and one God has implications. I heard someone years ago, I don't even know who said it, but heard someone say this, monotheism demands mission. Or you could say one Savior demands mission. 
Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Once you bow the knee and experience the sovereign God being for you, by his grace, you want to. You need to say, there's, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So let me close with a story, um, a little brief clip from um, The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. So if you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, there is a country called Narnia, and there is a king of that country, a lion named Aslan. He is the Christ figure. And there's a little girl named Jill who shows up, who, who ends up in Narnia, um, and she is surprised and doesn't really know much about Narnia yet, and yet she meets the lion. And here's what happens. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had taken a step nearer. Do you eat girls? she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, Kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing about our great God, behold our God. And then if you would like to pray with anyone, um, pray with someone, I should say, uh, myself and maybe Susan, would you mind coming up, and Bill and Barb just coming up. If Certainly if you don't know Christ, we would love to lead you to him, um, but also maybe you're raging against circumstances and just really struggling to to kind of yield to the potter's hands. And maybe you just want someone to, to talk to or pray with you. We'd be happy to do that as well. So let's pray and then we're going to sing. God, we acknowledge that there is no other way. And that can be a hard pill to swallow. But help us to see that you certainly were in no way obligated to make even one way. And we thank you for your great, great mercy and kindness and patience and your willingness to demonstrate your love and mercy and kindness to send your son to take on our clay. 
to be crushed where we deserve to be crushed so that we can be made whole, so that the treasure of the gospel could be inside these jars of clay that we are. So Lord, please, where we need to bend and yield and trust your wisdom and sovereignty, please give us faith to do that. And where there might be someone who is not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, confessing him as Lord and Savior, would you please show them that you are not just a great and awesome king, but you are the best, good, wise, and wonderful king. And may they bow gladly in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.